Welcome to the Antioch Podcast. We're a justice-minded Christian church in beautiful Bend, Oregon, seeking and celebrating the reconciliation of all things. May the word of Christ dwell in you fully and give you peace. Our scripture reading today is from Psalm 119, verses 1 through 8. Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. They do no wrong, but follow his ways. You have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. I will praise you with an upright heart as I learn your righteous laws. I will obey your decrees. Do not utterly forsake me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Medell. Morning, church. Good to see you all today. My name's Pete, if we haven't met yet, and uh, really glad that you're with us. Um, before we dive into the scripture this morning, I want to just pause for a moment and uh, sit in the reality that I'm grateful that Eric led us in prayer about, and that's the, uh, the horrible tragedy in uh, Syria and Turkey this week with the earthquakes. They're still pulling survivors out, but the latest number I saw is over 28,000 people have died. And um, the truth is, I know that's a bad thing, but I sometimes have a hard time establishing an emotional connection with events like this because they just seem so far away, right? Seems so disconnected from our life here in Bend. And um, one of the things that was helpful this week, my friend Pete Santucci, known around here as Repeat or <laughs> Second Peter, um, he. Uh, Show me a text this week pointing out the fact that our church is named after the biblical city of Antioch. Um, in the book of Acts, we're told that it was in Antioch where followers of Jesus were first called Christians. And what Pete reminded me of is that the city of Antioch still exists today. It's called Antakya, and it sits at the border of Syria and Turkey. You can see it there at the very bottom of the map. And it was one of the hardest hit cities by these earthquakes and was almost completely destroyed. Thousands of homes crumbled and families are buried in the rubble. And almost all of the ancient remnants of the old city, including one of the world's earliest Christian churches are now gone. Um, for years, I've been dreaming about leading a pilgrimage for our church to go visit Antioch and to walk through the streets and to see some of the places. Antioch no longer exists. And um, why do I bring that up? Well, because God is near to the brokenhearted. And I want 
our hearts to break for the things that break God's heart. And if there's one thing that we learn about God when we look at Jesus on the cross, it's that he's not apathetic or indifferent to human suffering. And so I want to invite you, um, I'll just create space for a moment, 30 seconds or so, to sit in silence, to lament, to grieve, and to pray on behalf of our brothers and sisters in Turkey and Syria. And I'll close us with the mercy prayer in just a moment. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on our brothers and sisters in Turkey and Syria. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. This morning, we are in Psalm 119. And uh, you may know that Psalm 119 is not only the longest chapter in the book of Psalms, it's also the longest chapter in the entire Bible, 176 verses long. Uh, another thing that you need to know about Psalm 119 is that it's an acrostic of the Hebrew alphabet, just like the psalm that Sean was in last week. But Psalm 119 takes the acrostic to a whole nother level because it doesn't just give one verse to each letter of the alphabet. It actually gives eight verses to each of the 22 letters of the, verse of the, uh, letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So 22 letters, eight verses each, 176 verses. So it's the longest chapter in the Bible. It's an acrostic. And here's the third thing you need to know. All 176 verses are about the same subject. The entire psalm is devoted to praising God and celebrating one specific gift that he's given. And that gift is the word of God. So for the psalmist, that, of course, means the Hebrew scriptures. So there are three psalms that are devoted to describing and declaring the truth, beauty, and goodness of God's word. Psalm 1, Psalm 19, and Psalm 119. And so what we see in Psalm 119 is a passionate poetic tribute to the word of God where the poet is absolutely enthralled with the scriptures. And for 176 verses, he goes on and on and on about all the ways that he loves God's word. In order to keep the poem from getting too repetitive or monotonous, he uses several different words to refer to the word of God. So there's eight of them in the NIV. The, I'll just read my list, laws, statutes, ways, precepts, decrees, commands, words, and promises. These are eight synonyms that show up 177 times in these 176 verses. So nearly every verse in Psalm 119 says something specific about the scriptures. If the form of the psalm isn't enough to show us how the writer feels about the scriptures, let's look at the actual content of the poem. I want you to listen to some of the words he uses to describe how he feels about God's word. And I want you to notice uh, how hard he's swinging here. 
Verse 14, I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches, okay? Most of us would rejoice if we came into great riches. Billions of dollars all of a sudden are ours, we would celebrate. Following the statutes of God for him is equally as exciting, okay? <laughs> Pay attention to that. Verse 20, my soul is consumed with longing for your laws at all times. Verse 72, the law from your mouth is more precious to me than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. So again, we're like, man, silver and gold sounds amazing. And the author's like, yeah, but have you ever read Hosea? (laughs) Verse 97, oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. And finally, verse 103, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Okay, I could go on and on. What you see in Psalm 119 is this passionate, poetic tribute to the word of God. This author is absolutely enthralled with the scriptures. Now, forgive me if I'm being a tad cynical here, but my assumption is that for most of us, this isn't how we feel about the Bible most of the time. Uh, Maybe you do. Maybe you would say all these same things, that you just love the word of God, you can't get enough of it, you'd rather have it than any earthly possession. If that's you, that's great, and that's amazing, and I'm glad that you're here. Um, For me, personally, I've been learning, studying, reading, trying to live according to the Bible basically my entire life, And there have been some moments and there have been some seasons where I just can't get enough of God's word. But on a normal day, if I'm honest, I'm pretty ambivalent about it. I think about it some, I read it some, but I don't spend that much time gushing about it. And I say that as somebody who went to school to study the Bible and makes a living teaching the Bible, okay? So I apologize if this is disappointing to you, but... um, (laughs) I would have a hard time writing a 176-verse poem about how much I love the scriptures. Now, the truth is, I don't know if I love anything that much. Um, (laughs) You know I struggle with depression, so maybe this is just me. But even if we're talking about my favorite things in the world, I'm not sure I could write a whole uh, alphabetical poem about it. Um, And I would say, I would guess, most of us probably feel the same way. So why is that? Why don't we feel the way the psalmist feels about the Bible? Um, Again, my guess, my hunch is that many of us have a somewhat problematic relationship with the scriptures. Like if we had to select a Facebook status to describe our relationship with the Bible, we'd choose it's complicated. Um, For the kids in the room, Facebook is this website (laughs) where you go and find out which of your relatives are racist. Um, <laughs> just, that's not fun. It's complicated, isn't it? It's complicated. We have uh, a problematic relationship with the Bible. We value it, we believe it, we show up at church once or twice a month um, to listen to the Bible being preached. 
But if we're honest, I think most of us have a hard time figuring out where it fits into our everyday lives. And so I've been a pastor for over 20 years. Let me share with you just a few of my observations along these lines and why I would say such a thing. These aren't true of all Christians, but they're true of many Christians in one way or another. And they're somewhat simplistic and somewhat blunt, but here's my first observation. We don't actually read the Bible. That's where I would start. We don't actually read the Bible. If I were to ask you to raise your hands, and I'm not going to, and say, how many of you carve out time every single day to sit down, open up the Bible, and read, I would guess it's actually a pretty small number, maybe 10% or something like that. Um, if I were to ask how many of you have read the entire Bible cover to cover, I would be curious what that number would be too, maybe a little higher than 10%. Um, the Bible we know is the best-selling book of all time. Some 25 million copies are sold every single year. The average U.S. American household owns 4.3 Bibles. Our problem isn't that we don't have Bibles, <laughs> it's that we don't read them. Now the crazy thing is, even if we don't read them, most of us want to. We want to read the Bible as Christians. We, there's something in us that's drawn to it, and we like the idea, and we may have even tried. A buddy of mine texted the other day and says, why is it that I can get a 25-day streak on Wordle, but only a one-day streak in God's Word? <laughs> don't you know that feeling? So even if we want to, we don't read it. Another issue is that some of us just don't read, period right? Um, it's not that we don't know how to read, it's that we don't like to read. So we're living in an increasingly post-literate society. There's pre-literate societies that, that can't communicate via written word, and then there's literate societies, and then there's a post-literate society, which we are increasingly becoming, meaning we know how to read, we'd just rather not, okay? The fascinating thing is that post-literate societies begin to resemble pre-literate societies, and that rather than written words, they begin relying on images, symbols, and pictures to communicate. So when my kids text me, it's primarily emojis, and I'm having to learn a whole new post-literate language. When most of us want to learn how to do something, we don't search for a PDF that will give us an instruction manual, we look for a YouTube video so we can watch. So, some of us don't read it at all, so of course, we would struggle to read the Bible. Um, but even if we do read, uh, we don't read the Bible. That's my first observation. The second is that uh, we don't know how to read the Bible. We've tried, we open it up, and there's just so many questions. We know that there's all different kinds of literature here, different genres, different time periods, different authors, different cultures, written in different languages. And um, we don't really know how to approach it. Should I be reading long chunks or should I be focusing on short little sections? Should I be reading um, in a studious mindset or should I be reading in a prayerful mindset? Um, what questions should I be asking? A lot of us just have a hard time knowing how to read the Bible. And my third observation is when we do read the Bible, we don't like it. Some of you are new here, and this is a little startling to have a pastor get up here and say these things, and I uh, apologize, but uh, we might as well be honest about this. I think most of us, when we do read the Bible, we find it either boring, confusing, or offensive. 
boring in the sense that, man, there's just a whole lot that doesn't capture our attention or our imagination the way uh, we think a good book ought to. Um, confusing in the sense that there's just so much that the writers assume about the readers that may not be true of us. And then on top of that, you're dealing with different translations of the Bible and then different interpretations of various texts, and so we get easily confused. And offensive in the sense that there are things that we read in the Bible that we really have a hard time with. And not just the fact that they happen or that they are mentioned in the scripture, but things that are attributed to the people of God or even to God himself that really, really rub us the wrong way. There's been a cultural shift even in my generation where my parents, I think, could read a story like Joshua in the Battle of Jericho and see Joshua march around the city and pray and blow the trumpet and God would cause the, the city walls to crumble and we would, my parents would celebrate that God uh, was faithful to his promises and, and delivered his people. That's what my parents' generation would see in Joshua in the Battle of Jericho. I open the Bible to that passage and I see genocide. I'm going, man, what do we do with that? And so when we read the Bible, oftentimes we don't like it. So the question this morning is, with all the issues that we have with the Bible, is it even worth it? Is it still good for us? Do we still need it? Why can't we just keep Jesus but get rid of the Bible? That'd be nice. I like Jesus, but I struggle with the Bible. Well, why can't we do that? The short answer is because Jesus. Jesus loved the Bible. He was a Jewish rabbi. We forget that oftentimes. So he was a scholar and a teacher of the Hebrew scriptures. He most likely had the entirety of the Old Testament committed to memory. If you look at Jesus' words in the Gospels, 10% of them are direct quotes from the word of God. One out of every 10 words he said, he was quoting scripture. The scriptures were the foundation of Jesus' life, of his faith, of his sense of who he was and <clears throat> what he came to do. And so, if you wanna be a follower of Jesus, you have to follow him in this too. You don't have to be a Christ follower. But if you're going to be a Christ follower, then you have to follow him into the scriptures. So I'm going to take a few minutes this morning and ask this question. What did Jesus believe about the Bible? And we'll come back to Psalm 119 here in a moment. But I think this is incredibly important for us as people who are devoted to Jesus and learning how to live with him and become like him. What did Jesus believe about the Bible? I've got five answers to that question. Number one, for Jesus, the Bible is a story. For Jesus, the Bible is a story. In John chapter five, Jesus says this, and the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. 
You've never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you. For if you do not believe the one, for you do not believe the one he sent. Listen, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Okay, so for Jesus, he saw the Bible as a story, as opposed to an encyclopedia or an instruction manual for life. He read it as a story and ultimately as a story in which he himself was the main character. And to see that Jesus reads the Bible as a story shouldn't be too far of a leap for us because almost 50% of the actual biblical text is narrative literature. And the parts that aren't narrative literature, that are poetry and prophecy and things like that, they are located within the context of the biblical narrative. And so <clears throat> Jesus didn't see the Bible as an encyclopedia, but as a story of God and the world that he made, which is different than how a lot of folks tend to think of the Bible. If you go on Amazon and look for books other than the Bible that use the, the word Bible in their title, you'll get all kinds of fun examples. Here's three that I found. You got the Solar Power Bible, the Psilocybin Bible, and the Shooter's Bible. There's literally hundreds more. Now, when these uh, authors use the term Bible in their title, what are they trying to convey about the content of their book? They're trying to convey that it's a comprehensive guide, a step-by-step -step, uh, to everything you need to know about that subject, which is great, but that's not how Jesus thought about the Bible. He saw it primarily as a story, and ultimately a story about him. So Jesus saw the Bible as a story. Number two, Jesus saw the Bible as inspired. For Jesus, the Bible is inspired. In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, Jesus says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So again, Jesus sees himself as the main character of this story, but notice what he says about the words of Scripture. Not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen. In the older translations, every jot and tittle, every little period and punctuation mark, he says every single part of it is part of God's word. Jesus has about as high a view of the Bible as anyone possibly can. He sees the entirety of it, every single part of scripture, as inspired by God. Which is important to realize because oftentimes I hear people, and I understand why they say this, I hear people say, you know, I really like the New Testament, I'm just not sure about the Old Testament. Or I really enjoy Jesus, I'm just not so big on Paul. We have parts of the Bible we're drawn to and parts that are hard for us, and that's okay. But if what Jesus believed is true, that the entirety of God's word, every jot and tittle, is inspired and it is scripture, then we don't get to pick and choose. For Jesus, the Bible is inspired. 
Not only that, number three, for Jesus, the Bible is authoritative. The Bible is authoritative. In John 10, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the Father sent apart as his very own and sent into the world? This little phrase here that Jesus uses, the scripture cannot be set aside, reveals a lot to us about how Jesus saw the Bible. It can't be ignored. It can't be retired. It can't be set aside. Some translations say it can't be broken. So yes, Jesus sees the Bible as a story, but he sees it as an authoritative story. So it's not just the laws that Jesus sees as instructional, but the entirety of scripture he sees as having authority over how God's people are to live. And so if we want to see the Bible the way Jesus saw the Bible, then we need to come underneath its authority. Number four, moving quick here, but there's a lot. For Jesus, the Bible is both human and divine. For Jesus, the Bible is both human and divine. So in that verse in John 10, Jesus is making the case for his deity, and the source that he uses to give authority to his argument is a line from a worship song in Psalm 82. He doesn't go to the law or the prophets or the history books. He goes to this obscure song. It wasn't even written by David. It was written by Asaph, who nobody even knows. So Jesus isn't quoting some memorable epic part of the scriptures. He's quoting this podunk little line from a song that only has eight lines. Jesus believed that Psalm 82 was written by God and it was written by Asaph. Jesus believed that the Bible was both human and divine, or another way to put it is that Jesus saw the Bible as both scripture, the word of God, and literature, the word of humans. There's a lot we could say about this, but in our day, what I've observed is that theologically conservative Christians tend to emphasize the divinity of Scripture, emphasize the fact that the Bible contains the Word of God, while theologically liberal Christians tend to emphasize the humanity of Scripture. But if you ask Jesus whether the Bible was written by God or humans, his answer would be yes, right? Which is confusing, but it's also very similar to what we believe about who Jesus is himself. Was Jesus a man or was Jesus God? Yes. Later on um, in Paul's writings, we would see both of these realities reflected. That the Bible is the word of God and it is written by humans at specific times in specific places with specific personalities and cultures. 
So for example, 2 Timothy chapter 3. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So yes, every single word of scripture is God-breathed, inspired by God, contains the word of God. Scripture is by God. On the other hand, listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Here's Paul. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. So Paul's just made this theological claim based on the fact that he hasn't baptized any of them. But then he goes, oh yeah, I also baptized the household of Stephanus, and beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. (laughs) I just love that. Uh, I mean, it's the whole point he was trying to make. He just undercut because he can't remember. Um, Every single word is inspired by God. (laughs) Is it God's word or is it man's? Well, it's both. It's both scripture and literature, not one or the other. So Jesus saw the Bible as both human and divine. And number five, for Jesus... The Bible needs to be interpreted rightly. The Bible needs to be interpreted rightly. He says this many places, but in Matthew chapter 5, again in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Jesus uses these phrases over and over and over in his teaching. You have heard it said, but I say to you. What he's talking about is the importance of interpreting the scriptures well. If you've ever read an introductory book or taken an introductory class on hermeneutics, the, uh, the work of interpreting the Bible, then you probably came across a really basic three-step strategy. <clears throat> Revelation interpretation, application. Revelation is what does the text say? Interpretation is what does the text mean? And application is what does the text mean for me? How would I live this out? So what does it say? What does it mean? What does it mean for me? And that's a great way to approach any passage of scripture. The problem is that there is a tendency amongst many of us to skip step two entirely. We don't ask what the text means. We ask, what does it say? And then what does it mean to me? And Jesus would have a problem with that. To skip from revelation to application and not taking the time for interpretation. If you're from the South, you may have seen a bumper sticker at some point that says, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. They're skipping step two, aren't they? The Bible has to be interpreted, and Jesus constantly is doing this and teaching his disciples how to do it. You have heard it said, but I say to you, that verse doesn't mean what you think it means. And the invitation is to ask the hard questions, to wrestle with the text, 
to weigh the various ways that people have interpreted it over the years and not move from what does it say to what does it mean to me, but to truly ask, what does it mean to God and to the author who inspired it or who wrote it? If we don't do this, the consequences can be significant. That's at a small personal level. Or think of all the horrible things that have been done throughout history in the name of the Bible. You can find a Bible verse to justify pretty much anything. The Bible says a lot of stuff. But if we stop and ask, what does it mean? Then we start getting a different picture. And so Jesus invites all of his disciples to be those who wrestle with the scripture. You don't need a PhD in Greek or Hebrew or anything like that. But we need the church, we need the community, and ultimately we need the Holy Spirit, the same spirit who inspired the writing of scripture to inspire our reading and our understanding of it. So, don't skip step two. The Bible has to be interpreted, and ultimately, it has to be interpreted through the lens of Jesus himself, that he is the true inspired word of God. <clears throat> so that's a quick look at how Jesus saw the Bible. To Jesus, the Bible is a story. It's inspired. It's authoritative. It's both human and divine, and it needs to be interpreted well. So there's a lot more we could say about that, but here's the main point. Why can't we say, I don't know about the Bible, but I just want to follow Jesus? <laughs> because Jesus loved the Bible. You don't have to be a Christ follower, but if you're going to be a Christ follower, then you have to follow him in this too. There's a... British theologian named Andrew Wilson who wrote this great little book on Jesus' beliefs about the scripture and he sums it up really simply like this. He says, I don't trust in Jesus because I trust the Bible. I trust the Bible because I trust in Jesus. I love him and I've decided to follow him. So if he talks and acts as if the Bible is trustworthy, authoritative, good, helpful, and powerful, I will too. I love that. So where does that leave us when it comes to Psalm 119? Where we have this guy gushing over how much he loves and adores the word of God. What do we do if we're not there? Well, I think what we do is acknowledge that Psalm 119 isn't primarily some dude's self-expression. It's not just the words of a guy who's madly in love with the word of God. I think what we primarily have in Psalm 119 is a liturgical text. A poetic song given to the church to be sung and to be prayed. I often say the Psalms is the only book of the Bible that's not meant to be read. It's meant to be prayed. And when we pray the words of Psalm 119 and other psalms over and over repeatedly throughout our lives, what happens is that we find ourselves confessing the things, we find ourselves saying things that may not yet be true of us. 
We find ourselves expressing things that aren't quite how we feel, but we hope that they will be one day. And so as we pray the Psalms, as we sing the Psalms throughout our lives, year after year, the hope is that these words would become true of us as well. Because the purpose of prayer isn't primarily about self-expression. It's primarily about spiritual formation. It's about us being shaped into people who look more and more like Jesus. And so here's my challenge for you. Read the Bible. It may have been a while. I know it's complicated. But I don't want to challenge you to read the Bible from a place of guilt or duty or shame or obligation. In fact, let me just say this. Jesus has forgiven you for all of your missed quiet times. <laughs> he really has. He's not mad at you. He's not embarrassed by you. He loves you. And he gave his life for you. And he wants you to live deeply in this same love that he has for God and God's word and God's world. We enter into Lent next week. Might be a good time for you to think about what it would mean to engage the scriptures in a new or specific way. <clears throat> There's books out in the library that can help with those of you that are struggling with questions about where we got the Bible or what we do with it. We've got prayer books out there. Whatever it looks like, I would encourage you to ask that question. If you're going to follow Jesus, what would it look like to follow him into his love and commitment for the word of God? Sean's going to come and lead us to the table.